Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it says this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All right, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we uh, we come to you in prayer, um, God, to to offer our our cares and our um, concerns before you, um, God. As we've already sung and said, um, you are a God who is good and gracious. You are a God of provision for your people, um, God. And so we pray uh, on behalf of our own church, um, God, as we move forward as a church body, um, that you would um, direct us, God, that you would give us wisdom in the decisions that we need to make. Um, God, as these, as these things that maybe some of us know about or, or not all of us know about or these different decisions that are coming um, towards us about maybe renting a space and, and God, starting new ministries with, with the ESL stuff. Um, God, these are all things that we need your guidance and wisdom on. We need you to time them uh, for us. We need you to um, open our eyes to opportunities and needs. God, we need you to give us um, courage and boldness um, to step out into these things. Um, God, we also need you to give warning uh, in places that uh, maybe we think look like a good idea but, but would not be best for, uh, for our fellowship. And so, God, we just ask that you would um, guide us in these things, um, that you would give us a spirit of prayer on all of these issues, that each of us individually would pray um, for your wisdom and guidance, um, and, God, that you would show us and lead us in, in the best path. Um, God, you are the great provider, and as we come to this text, we ask that you would provide also in terms of our knowledge and understanding, that you would shine the light of the Holy Spirit on this verse uh, section in Ephesians, and that, um, God, we would know it and understand it rightly um, because we are learning um, through the Holy Spirit, um, God, that our ears and our understanding, um, that our hearts and our emotions, um, that our minds are formed and stirred by your Holy Spirit as we as we dive into your word. And so, God, help us to that end. Um, work in us so that we can know you rightly, honor you rightly, and live our lives in a way uh, that honors you. Uh, we love you. We praise you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.
All right, so um, so I want to start tonight uh, there in Ephesians 2 with just a couple of comments um, about two factors that I feel like are probably um, super significant things going on in our culture currently, all right? Um, I think we could probably say that in some ways with these two things, our culture is at a crossroads, um, and those are these issues. One of them is loneliness, um, and the other is tribalism. Okay, And in many ways, those two forces are opposites, right? Loneliness is about your, your isolation and feeling like there's nobody um, that knows you or you're connected to. And yet at the same time, there is this tribalism in our culture, right, of this, of this um, um, pull to be a part of a group of people and then sort of like you could say a knee-jerk association to, to believe and want what that group wants and to not like and be against the things that that group says we're supposed to be against. Against right, um, I think it confirms what is 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 becoming more and more um, self evident, and that is the fact that we are a nation that is not working together. Right, we've we are a nation that is, is has lost its understanding of how people can can coexist and yet um, have different views about stuff. It's actually some of the stuff we talked about tonight in our in our apologetics class about the idea of of plurality and exclusivity when it comes to belief and truth and things like that. Um, in all of this, we might have the tendency to ask, well, where's God in all these things? Right? How does God um, relate to these things? Whose side? Is God on in these things? Um, I think we come to Ephesians chapter 2 and see um, that God is here not to join our tribe, right? But he is here to make us join his, okay? Um, He is not here to be the mascot for anybody's um, belief system. He is here to say, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and you need to be reconciled to me. So as we look at this passage, uh, we're going to kind of hit it in sections, um, kind of like we did a couple weeks ago, but with, with connector words, right? You know as you're studying the scriptures, as you're reading the Bible, you should always pay attention to connector words, okay? And so we're going to notice that um, in verse 11 you see, therefore. In verse 13 you see, but now. And then um, down in verse 19 you see, so then. Okay, those are important sort of signposts to understanding this passage. Therefore, looking backwards, but now, what has changed? And so then, how should we live in light of those things? Okay, and so um, those will kind of be the things that that we mark off. Okay, so first off, um, he starts off the passage kind of saying where we are at or where um, we are at as lost people. All right, so anyone who has read the Old Testament has come to an understanding, or or you should have, is uh, about the nature of the people of God, okay, who the people of God um, are. And and here's something you notice when you read the Old Testament, and it's something that I think is confusing to people sometimes, right? There is a hard distinction between God's chosen people, the Jews, and everyone else in the world, right? There's a hard distinction. These are God's people. These are not God's people. So so the, the, the Hebrew word is goyim, Okay, Um, which means the nations. Right. So there's the Jews and then there's the nations. There's everybody else. All right. It's actually where there's a slang word that that uh, that kind of in the Yiddish called goy. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Like sometimes they'll say, you know, a Jewish woman will say, well, that's goy, meaning that's goyim. That's Gentile. Um, That's that's something that Jewish people don't do. Right. Okay. In fact, the Latin word is Gentile. That's the word that we're probably more familiar with. Not goyim, but, but Gentile. And it's the same thing. It's the idea of everybody who's not Jewish. Okay. 
Um, but as the New Testament draws, um, the, the New Testament era kind of kind of comes, dawns, um, one of the biggest questions on the minds of both Jews who have followed Christ and Gentiles who have followed Christ is how do these two groups of people connect, right? How are we supposed to understand Jews who have trusted in Christ and yet Gentiles who are coming into the faith at the same time? In fact, that is the... That is the uh, um, topic that is being discussed at what we call the First Church Council, which is found in Acts chapter 15. Okay, and so it, that council where all these leaders of the church come and discuss the issue of the Gentiles and what are we going to do about the Gentiles? Like, how are we going to incorporate them into the people of God? That was this big issue, right? Paul is speaking directly about that when we come into Ephesians chapter 2, okay? He's talking about that issue, but it's going to be broader than that also, right? He's going to use that as an opportunity to expand um, beyond just that issue. Um, and he's going to talk in some very stark terms, especially right from the get-go there in verses 11 um, and 12. And so you, you, we see that he's explaining the situation of the Gentiles, what it, what it looks like to be a Gentile um, before they come to Christ. And it says this in verse 11. Remember, at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh, right? You were called the uncircumcision by the people who were called the circumcision, which is made by fle- uh, made in flesh by hands, okay? So just again, referencing um, the ceremonial rite uh, that distinguished Jews from Gentiles. But then he says this in verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant promises, covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world, right? That is a stark, um, oppressive kind of description, right? Um, that is, I mean, if, when you read those words and think about the reality of them, like that's a heavy passage. Uh, last week we talked about the gospel, and we talked about that sort of way of remembering the gospel. God, man, Christ, response, kingdom, right? That would be a, this would be a great passage to zoom in on when we're talking about man in his rebellious state. What does it look like to be a lost person? It looks like being without Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger to the covenant promises, having no hope, and without God in the world. Right? We, we, we listen to those things and it almost sounds too, it almost sounds too bad, right? Like the, the situation is too dark. It goes against everything that the generic spirituality, spirituality of the world would say, right? The generic spirituality of the world would say, no man, everybody's connected to God, right? Like we all have a connection to God. God's all, all of our Father and, and, and we're all connected, connected to God. Um, and the answer is, that's not true. No, He is not. Um, he is not everybody's father. We don't all have a connection to him, right? We just listen to this description of those who are separated from Christ. People without God and without hope. That's who, that's who you are before Christ, okay? Um, you are cut off from God, and you are cut off from the typical means that you could ever find out about God. That was part of the difficulty um, of, of, of being a Gentile, right? You were cut off from the life and belief and teaching and community of the nation of Israel, which was God's chosen people who he had revealed himself to and worked through, okay? And so we recognize, as we read the Old Testament, that the Jews had it better than everybody else. They had been blessed in a unique way of knowing God that nobody else had been blessed with. And so Paul talks about it in Romans 4. He says, 
to the Jews belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belonged the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, right? And so he says, man, the Jews had an advantage, there's, there's no way to get around that, okay? It wasn't like, oh, well, cool, God had shown himself to the Jews in certain ways, but he'd shown himself to other people in other ways. He hadn't. Not the way he had to the Jews. The Jews had an advantage over everybody else. Um, although they had an advantage, that doesn't mean that they were all right with God. We see that too, right? Just because they had those advantages doesn't necessarily mean that they were right. Um, but the Gentiles had nothing, Right. The Gentiles had creation. They could look to creation. And the Romans chapter one tells us that we know some things about God by looking at the world around us. We know some things about God by looking at our consciences and things like that. But in general, we have no relationship with God, no means of learning about him and therefore no hope. That's the situation of the lost. And again, that should be something that at least in terms of missionary thought, should be a passage that stirs us. All right? And I don't think this is Paul's context here, but as we read that passage with eyes to a lost world, to eyes towards a world that doesn't have Christ, that should stir our affections in our hearts, right? We should think about the people that we see walking by us every single day who do not have Christ and think, these are people without God, they are people without hope, They are people who are cut off from the promises of God. They are cut off from the community of God, right? That should break our hearts. And it should be something that pushes us towards evangelism, pushes it towards ministry, pushes pushes us towards reaching out to those people. Because otherwise they will stay that way with no God, with no gospel, and with no hope. That's an uncomfortable truth for us, right? It, it says we should be doing something and be somebody that we're not currently, right? It should wake us up. But at the same time, and I think probably what Paul is more getting at, is he's saying, this is who you were, right? He's not particularly thinking about other people out there. He's saying, you were that person with no hope, no God, um, no chance to know him. That's who you were before Christ came into your life. All right. And without Christ, you would be in the exact same situation as all those people. And then we get to verse 13 and it says, but now. okay. so again, in a gospel illustration, we go from sinful mankind to Jesus, this perfect savior. But now in verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All right, so last week we, we zoomed in on these two aspects of salvation. We talked about how God has made us alive in Christ, and God has raised us up with Christ into, into seated us with him in the heavenlies, right? Um, here we have another aspect, right? You have been brought near. That's what part of what salvation has done. You have brought, been brought near to God. You have brought near to Christ. Your alienation, your isolation from God has been destroyed. It has been eliminated, right? Jesus has welcomed you in close. We've already kind of touched on this when we talked about adoption in chapter 1 or when we talked about um, the inheritance that Christ has in the saints, right? That he loves us so much and wants us so much that we are his inheritance. He is, we are what he is winning by his righteous life. He does that, right? He brings those who are far off and those who are near 
together and he makes peace with them. And, it, and it's interesting. It says, notice it doesn't just say he makes peace. It says he's not just like a diplomat, right? He is our peace, right? Jesus is the thing that, that binds us together and makes peace between us. And so verse 14 says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile, right? I'm emphasizing some of these words, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, so that phrase, their dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Greeks, or the Jews and the Gentiles, um, that was a thing. It existed, right? There was something that separated those two people. And, and there's a lot of functions of that, right? There's a lot of reasons why that is. In part, it's due to the commandments of God, right? Again, as we read the Old Testament, we know this from, from God's word. The purity laws, the ceremonial cleanliness laws, all those things were intended to segregate God's people, right? They were intended to say, everybody else in the world is on that side, and you are my special people who are different and set apart, okay? And so, at one level, the division between the Gentiles and the Jews was intended by God, right? Okay? But there were also other things that arose in the culture of the Jews, right? Um, there was a certain level of arrogance that, that arose among them. There was a certain amount of isolationism that said, we don't want to have anything to do with other people who are out there. Because there's various places in the, in the Old Testament where we read that essentially the Jews were supposed to be a city on a hill, Right. They were supposed to be this example to the world that the nations would see and flock to and want to essentially convert to Judaism and become Jewish. Right. But that wasn't what happened. Um, what happened is, is the Jews, instead of being a city on the hill, tended to be like a lamp under a basket. Right. And they isolated themselves and they said, we don't want to have anything to do with the rest of the world. And so um, there's another layer to that division, right? There's this thing that's separating the Jews from, from everybody else, right? And again, I think we can, we can relate to that, right? We sometimes are the same people. Instead of living lives that are, are um, trying to show the world who God is, we intend, instead uh, turn in on ourselves. And so uh, all that stuff is, is the case, right? There's this real dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. But here's something else that is inferred by that passage. The hostility doesn't just exist between the Jews and the Gentiles, right? It exists between all peoples in different ways, right? There are all these walls of hostility that divide us, okay? The world is full of dividing walls of hostility, right? It is a, it is a, it's a common kind of axiom. You hear this in stuff that the best way to make people be friends is to give them a common enemy. You ever heard that, right? Um, you, you can make two people be allies by giving them a common enemy. I think that is true. Um, but it's only true because of our fallen natures, right? It is a function of being fallen, that we believe that and it actually acts out and, and works. That's what lost people do. Lost people say, hey, you want to be friends? Let's hate the same person. And then that'll make us united. That's what, that's what the world does, okay? Um, we feel lonely. 
We feel isolated, like we talked about at the beginning, and we try to fix that problem of isolation and loneliness by ganging up against common enemies. All right, so we see this all different kinds of ways. Racial, national, socioeconomic, political, religious, linguistic. I mean, all the way down to like what football team you like, okay, right? Like, we want to have somebody to hate. All right, you hear another line that you hear sometimes is, is we are a church who is known more by what we're against than what we're for. Have you ever heard that right? Man, that is so true of the church oftentimes because the church is guilty of these things too. We end up being people who join together based on what we are against. You see it all over our political climate, right? Um, intersectionality, identity politics on the left nationalism, uh, racial, racial kind of nationalism or whatever on the right, right? Recognize something. They're the same thing. They're the same view. It's just that one is the majority tribe and one is the minority tribe, okay? But it's all tribalism, right? It's all saying, let's get together the people who are like us and hate people who are not like us on, in, on whatever category, all right? Again, the world says if we want to unite, we must find allies who are willing to hate the same things. That's how the world works. All right? The gospel destroys that track. Okay? The gospel does the exact opposite of that. You will be unified, right? But not with greater hatred, but with greater love, right? With sacrifice. God's love in Christ will draw you close. It will connect you, not by making you hate those who are outside, but by loving God and aligning your life with his. And so, again, the, the gospel doesn't look for allies in a war of dominance. All right? The gospel reconciles people, which is the opposite. It is a completely different mindset. Okay? It says, I'm not looking to win. I'm looking to bring us together. I'm looking for us to be um, realigned in these two divergent parties, right? Do you see why I think um, ministry to refugees and to immigrants, which we've been talking a lot about, and all this, this the ESL stuff that we've been doing, um, is a function of this, right? Do you, do, you, do you see the connection between those things? Um, reaching out to people who are different than us is a gospel thing to do. Okay? Now, it's not the God, like we can't change people's hearts the way God can. God reconciles people, right? All we can do is almost imitate that reconciliation, right? We can say, we are going to try to be agents, facilitators of reconciliation. We are going to be means that God uses to reconcile. We are going to be, literally, the Bible talks about this. We are going to be ministers of reconciliation, okay? And so in verse 17, Jesus is sitting there indiscriminately preaching peace to both parties. But again, it's not just a generic peace. It is a peace that says, come to me and be aligned with me. All right? Not, not um, hey, let's, can't we all just get along kind of peace, but saying, be at peace, but be at peace by being reconciled to who I am, being aligning your life with who I am. And so in 17, again, he says, he came and he preached peace. To you who are far off and to peace who those were near. Like Jesus didn't show up and say, 
hey, Jews, you guys are on my side. I'm one of you. I'm a Jew. You're my boys. Let's hate everybody else, and that will unite us, and we'll be the real people of God. Nor did he say, hey, Gentiles, um, you guys have had the short end of this um, revelation stick um, for all of history, right? You didn't get any of the good stuff, so I'm with you guys now. And the Jews, forget them. Um, we're going to ditch them or whatever. That's not what he did. Jesus comes and he says, Jews, come. Gentiles, come. Be at peace with me. And then something cool happens when that happens. When we align our lives with Christ, there's actually a threefold alignment that takes place then. A threefold reconciliation, you could say, right? First, we as individuals are reconciled to God. Okay? Second, we as individuals are reconciled with each other. And then third, we as whole peoples or subgroups are reconciled to God and therefore to each other, right? Think about the way reconciliation like works in terms of math, okay? If you have a line and you want to make a line parallel with it, okay? So you bring it into alignment. Now you've got these two lines that are going the exact same direction forever, okay? If you have a third line, you bring it over and you reconcile it to that center line too, But guess what happens? When you reconcile it to the center line, what have you also done? You've also reconciled it to that other line, right? Because that's how reconciliation works. That's how alignment works. If you align to Jesus, who is correct, then anybody that aligns to Jesus, aligns to Jesus, is correct. And then, now those two people are aligned with each other too because they're aligned to Jesus. That's how it, that's how the process works, okay? What I'm saying is this is being made right with Jesus ought to make you be made right with other people. And being made right with other people in terms of individuals ought to make you be right with other people in terms of all those tribes, right? All those subsets of people. It doesn't matter if the two previous warring parties, whatever we're talking about, racial, national, ideological, or just personal, right? We can get big on this thing, but sometimes it's just somebody you're not, you don't get along with, right? But if you're brought into alignment with God, then you should be brought into alignment with other, each other, right? Or if you're not, then guess what that probably indicates? It probably indicates that your line is not actually in line with Christ as much as it should be, right? Or theirs isn't. Something's up, all right? So th- this is why it's important for our context, right? Um, for, for, again, the political and, and social context we're in right now. I think the gospel... Um, is what has not only the power, but the plan to reconcile the races and the classes and the nationalities and anything else, okay? The gospel is what has the power to do that, okay? But this is what we do, and this is the tragedy, okay? What we do is we as gospel bearers don't address the issue on gospel terms, Okay? We don't talk about it. We don't do anything about it. We don't say anything about it. We just let the issue progress. And then guess what happens? Other people who aren't gospel people then try to fix the problem. Okay? And they bring their own terms and their own ideologies and their own thought processes and, and all of these other pieces to the table. Okay? And so, again, we, we either don't address the issue or we let other people address it on our behalf. So sometimes we let traditionalist conservatives address the problem on our behalf, which usually ends up to do nothing but reinforce the status quo. 
Okay? Or sometimes, as Christians, we let somebody else, progressive liberal groups, um, um, try to reconcile, uh, to figure this thing out, right? And so then what do we do? We end up promoting revolutionary stances on things or whatever, right? But guess what? Each group is trying to do this without Jesus, Right. And if they have Jesus in the mix, he's there as a mascot, as as somebody to just say, see, Jesus is on our side. Right. But they're not acting from a a, from a stance of Jesus. Jesus isn't on anybody's side. Right. He's on his side. Okay, Um, Jesus is on his own side. He's on the gospel side. And the gospel is the solution to that problem. So when we let the lost secular world, whether that is conservative or liberal, um, address these issues, and, and then we start talking in their terms. And you hear, we start talking about hegemonies, and we start, start talking about anchor babies, and we start talking about all these things that we go, these are not gospel ideas, right? This is not the way the gospel talks about these, these concepts or whatever. But we start thinking in broken language, broken principles, broken assumptions, broken values, broken understanding, employing broken methods, in all this stuff. And guess what? We're going to come up with a broken solution in all those things. If we do. It doesn't necessarily mean that every single thing that is said is useless out in the world. Right? Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Okay? So sometimes they might accidentally say something wise. Okay? But if that is not filtered through the truth of the gospel, then we're going to have a problem. The gospel is sufficient to fix the race problem. The gospel is sufficient to fix the class problem. The gospel is sufficient to fix any other problem that's out there. The problem is not in the weakness of the gospel to do the work. The problem is in the unwillingness of gospel people to let it do the work and to bring it to bear. All right? And so we don't need marks. All right. We don't need Darwin. We don't need Nietzsche in the conversation. Those guys don't have anything to offer it because they are their philosophies are bankrupt. All right. They didn't bring anything to the table. And so we should reject those ideologies. The gospel does the reconciling work. The gospel does the unifying work of Christ. It it reestablishes all our categories. Right. Or at least it should. So look at verse 19, right? And that's what really the rest of the passage is about. It's almost like it's saying, look, you are a new people now that looks different than any other people have ever looked. I loved something I came across as I was, as I was studying for this, this sermon. A concept that was, you heard a lot in the very early church, especially as they reflected on things like Ephesians chapter two, is they would talk about the third race. And they would say, there are three races in the world. There are Jews. There are Gentiles and there are Christians, right? But what was fascinating is obviously there were people from every race and every 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 color and every nationality in the world coming to Christ. And yet there was a recognition to say we are a new thing. We are a new people group that has emerged on the scene. And we get a description of that people group in 19 through 22. It says, so then, right? Connector words. So then, what is, what is the inference of all these things? What does this lead to, right? What is the outcome? So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
whatever tribe you were associated with before, it is now secondary and subservient to your identity in Christ. All right? We are citizens of the same kingdom now in Christ. We are members of the same family in Christ. And so, again, we're not talking about not being proud of where you came from, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I talk a lot about my Scots-Irish heritage, and I think it's cool, and, and I'm proud of it. And, and I'm, you know, I, I wear a kilt a couple times a year, right? Like, I enjoy it. I'm not telling you to say, oh, well, cool, so what Christianity means is I need to forget everything of where I came from. No, you can still be proud of those things um, and, and, and bear some of that cultural identity. But what you have to realize is this. Jesus supersedes all those things, right? You can say, well, yeah, you don't understand, Ash. My people have always been this way. Cool. Not anymore. Um, You're a different person now. You're not one of those people first and foremost. You're one of Christ's kingdom, one of Christ's family first and foremost now. So that's all that matters. Peter talks about it in a perfect way in in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. If you notice those three words, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, racial, socioeconomic, national. you got to knew all of those things, right? Next time you go to the DMV and you're filling out your little bubble form and it's like race, you say, add in a bubble and put chosen. Right. Um, and when it says, how much money do you make a year? Um, what is your socioeconomic class? You say, well, I'm actually a royal priest. Um, and and when it says, what is your nationality? You can add another bubble that says holy. OK, because that's who you are now. You are only secondarily white, secondarily American, secondarily um, middle class, secondarily college educated, secondarily blue collar. It doesn't matter. Those are all secondary things to you now. Okay, And so not only that, but look at verse 20. You were built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Who do you look to as the writers and the thinkers and the idea makers to give your faith content? It's not the enlightenment. Okay, it's not the atheist. It's not the it's not the pagan um, of the past. It's not the atheist from the enlightenment. Right. It is God's chosen prophets and apostles and and the people who have given us the scripture. That's your foundation now. Right. That's the apostles and the prophets. And thirdly, what is our guideline now for this new citizens citizenship that we have? What is the straight line for us? What is the heading that our lives should be placed on, set on? Well, it is Christ himself. Look what it says. Christ Jesus himself being our cornerstone. What does a cornerstone do? Right? You set the cornerstone because it's the stone that you have measured precisely so that you have a right angle and are going two different ways. You have a right measurement so that as you lay your other lines and rows of block, that they will be aligned, reconciled to the cornerstone. Right? They will be an exact proportion to them. And then guess what happens? When all these other blocks, and look at verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, right? We are that building that God is building, okay? And to the extent to which we align our lives and are reconciled with the cornerstone of Christ will be the straightness and soundness 
and secureness of the building that is the people of God that comes out of it, right? But if we take that cornerstone that is Christ and say, not super concerned about being precisely aligned with him. I think there's a lot of wiggle room here, all right? And then you start building a structure out from that, guess what's going to happen? It might be okay for a layer or two, but as soon as you get a little more complicated structure and it gets a little more hard to handle, what's going to happen? The instability is going to start to show. I think that's exactly what is playing out in our country today. And obviously there's more to it than that because not everybody in our country is a believer, right? This doesn't even apply to half the people that we're talking about or 90% of the people we're talking about, right? But it certainly applies to the church. And the church is doing that exact thing. As it loses its alignment with Christ, then it begins to lose its stability um, as as this, this piece of the culture, okay? But the idea, that picture there in verse 22, in him you are also being built together into one a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All the divisions that have that we have as individuals in Christ have begun to fade away, to fall to the side. None of those things are significant anymore. The same Spirit that is at work in me is at work in you if you're a follower of Christ. None of us are strangers anymore, right? I mean, it's interesting. You know, we, we say this a lot. Um, you have more in common with a Indian kid living in a slum uh, in, in Mumbai, right, than you do with your next-door neighbor if that kid is a believer and your neighbor is a lost person, right? You have more in common with them as, in terms of citizenship, in terms of kingly rule, in terms of your race, your nationality, and your class um, with that person who you have never met and seems to be so different from you. And yet you are fellow citizen saints, not strangers and aliens anymore, but members of God's own household, okay? And so... I think this is an important message for us as we as we deal with the stuff that's going on in our culture, right? And there's a lot of mess out there, right? And Christians come to it not knowing exactly how to deal with these things, right? And sometimes it's easy to just come into a situation and go, you know, these people have talked a lot about this already. I'm kind of late to the game, so I'm just going to jump on board that train. And, and, and as long as they don't do anything too crazy, I'm just going to ride this thing along. I don't think that's what we need to do, right? We need to come to the table with our own gospel answers, um, preaching a gospel message because God, the gospel is the only way that we're going to find reconciliation. It's the only way we're going to find peace. It's the only way um, that we're ever going to destroy that isolation that we feel, that loneliness, and yet at the same time not revert to tribalism as we come together. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and and just... Pray for our community, pray for our nation, um, pray for our political system. Man, it's starting. We're about to be in that cycle again. Um, the, the people are already declaring their candidacies. I was listening to the radio today, and I heard somebody, there's two guys that had declared their candidacies against Trump as Republicans. And I went, here we go, right? Um, get ready. Um, and that's just on the Republican side, right? On the Democrat side, obviously, there's already this huge field of candidates. Man, we're about to jump right into the middle of it. And our country, man, it's it's... Um, it's bad, right? These are not good things um, for um, the health and, and unity of our country. And so let's just pray to God right now. Um, ask him 
to work gospel truth into our, our lives, into our communities, into the way we engage with people, um, and even into um, the larger national discussion that we've got. So let's go Lord in prayer. You are the God who has stewarded and ushered in the rise and the fall of nations. God, you are the one who works through history to see that your plans come to fruition. God, you are almighty, all-sovereign, all-powerful. God, everything is in your hands, and so we pray On behalf of our nation, we pray on behalf of our communities, we pray on behalf of our churches, God, that you would reconcile us to yourself, God, and that you would reconcile us to each other. God, we know that there are many issues at play here. Um, We don't for a second pretend like we have done this rightly, God. We have all too often been the people as the church who have caused the harm, who have caused the hurt in people's lives. God, that is because we were not following Christ. We were not living in light of his gospel. So we ask that you would help us to do that, um, that we would be students of your word, that we would know um, what the gospel says, uh, what it has for us, God, and we would be people who are not afraid to take that gospel to others. That we are people who are not afraid to give a gospel answer, even knowing that many times the world re- will reject that. God, we, 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 we know that when we are straight up evangelizing people. God, but I think there's a piece of it that said that we are scared to do that when we bring things into the public sphere. Um, we are scared to sound like our answers are naive or simplistic. Um, when in fact they are the only way of, of salvation. They are the only way of reconciliation, God. Give us a firm grasp on the gospel. Give us a boldness to bring the gospel to bear on the culture around us, God. And help us be people who live all of our lives, not as, as members of, of a race or a party or a class, but people who are your people, children of your family, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and ask his blessing. Amen.